The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. What's the end game for America? Well, the goal is to repeal America. Nobody on the left really cares about Confederate generals who are all Democrats, but repeal Washington, Jefferson, Jackson, Lincoln, Grant, Columbus, the guy who wrote the Star Spangled Banner, and what's left? Now, the United States Supreme Court... Uh, They're judges who don't wear wigs, because that way it's a lot easier to hear which way the wind is blowing. Now, the Supreme Court has done its bit by reducing the 50 states to 49 and a half states, which is to say in a 5-4 decision, the court has ruled that half the state of Oklahoma is Indian country. It does this in order to quash the conviction of a child rapist. Jimmy McGurk, an Indian resident of Oklahoma, had been convicted of molesting and sodomizing a four-year-old girl, his wife's granddaughter. Mr McGurk argued that When it comes to an Indian sodomizing a four-year-old, the state does not have jurisdiction over him. And what do you know? It's the summer of 2020, so the US Supreme Court agreed with him, finding that the scene of the crime was, unbeknownst to anyone, a Creek Indian reservation, even though that Creek Indian reservation was disestablished by statute in the years running up to Oklahoma statehood in 1907. Uh, Mr. McCurk, just for the record, is not a Creek Indian, but a Seminole, but evidently all these native guys look alike to the Supreme Court. What awesome powers this tribunal has, don't you think? In 1927, the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council in London, which at that time had jurisdiction over a quarter of the earth, fixed the Quebec-Labrador border Uh, in a way that Quebecers still chafe at. And in fact, uh, on the illustration of the province's borders uh, on a Quebec driver's license, still do not recognise. Yet even at the height of uh, its majestic powers, I don't think it would ever have occurred to uh, their lordships on the Privy Council to undo a century of settled reality by judicial fiat. For that, we had to await the ascension of Trump Judge Neil Gorsuch, who joined with the quartet of uh, lefties on the Supreme Court to score a huge victory uh, for Seminole uh, child rapists who don't want to get in the sheriff's car. As listeners know, I loathe constitutional courts, uh, supreme courts that are as supreme as the US Supreme Court is. As I put it years ago, Americans threw off one guy in ermine to prostrate themselves before nine guys in basic black, which in practice boils down to one guy in basic black, uh, the designated swinger. Since the retirement of Anthony Kennedy, Messrs Gorsuch and Roberts have been competing with themselves to be the designated swinger, so the whole system's going to hell. But even when it works, it's ludicrous, offering the pitiful spectacle of 300 million people uh, bowing down to a supreme uh, intergalactic arbiter, 
Uh, and the even more pitiful spectacle of grown men torturing the English language to explain why blokes in powdered wigs had cannily foreseen the need for gay marriage and transgender participation in girls' school sports. For God's sake, man up, you wimps! And at least have the guts to do this stuff via referendum or legislation like Ireland, Belgium, Uruguay, Australia, rather than pretending some 18th century piece of parchment made implicit provision for it. Conservatives, as always, are 15 steps behind. Oh, well, we need to elect a Republican president in November, so he'll appoint rock-ribbed uh, constitutional judges like uh, David Souter and um, Anthony Kennedy. Oh, and, uh, and John Roberts. Oh, oh, and Neil Gorsuch. It's all rubbish. Culture trumps politics, and culture also trumps judicial politics. In 1986... Way back in what's known to historians as the Cindy Lauper era of human history, the Chief Justice of the United States declared that, quote, there is no such thing as a fundamental right to commit homosexual sodomy. A blink of an eye and his successors are discovering fundamental rights to commit homosexual marriage and fundamental rights to flaunt your wedding tackle in the girls' locker room. What happened in between? Jurisprudentially, nothing Everything Chief Justice Berger said back in the 80s about common law, Blackstone's crime against nature, the legislative authority of the state, all of it still applies, except it doesn't. Because the culture, from school guidance counsellors to sitcom characters to Oscar hosts, moved on. And so even America's regency of jurists, even supreme intergalactic arbiter Anthony Kennedy are obliged to get with the beat. The crinkly old parchment says exactly what it said in Burger's day, but it means something entirely different. Because to pronounce, as the Chief Justice of the United States pronounced a mere 34 years ago, would be to render oneself unfit for public office. Neil Gorsuch took 20 minutes on the bench to go rogue. Off the charts, wacky. His opinion... Written after a month of mob frenzy about Columbus et al. committing indigenous genocide, dwells at length on the troubled history between Indian peoples and the white man. I'm sympathetic. No one likes to be on the receiving end of a power imbalance. Uh, Jimmy McGurk's four-year-old granddaughter had her rectum torn apart because he chose to stick his penis up there. But the pain of that was not before the court any more than the pain of U.S. tribal relationships was before the court. The court was asked to decide a rather dry jurisdictional question. And Gorsuch's sobsystem wanderings about ancient history underline how eccentric his reasoning is. As Chief Justice Roberts wrote in his dissent, Today, the court holds that Oklahoma lacked jurisdiction to prosecute McGurk on the improbable ground that, unbeknownst to anyone for the past century, a huge swathe of Oklahoma is actually a Creek Indian reservation on which the state may not prosecute serious crimes committed by Indians like McGurk. Not only does the court discover a Creek reservation that spans three million acres and includes most of the city of Tulsa, 
Tulsa, but the court's reasoning portends that there are four more such reservations in Oklahoma. The rediscovered reservations encompass the entire eastern half of the state, 19 million acres that are home to 1.8 million people, only 10 to 15 percent of whom are Indians. Across this vast area, the state's ability to prosecute serious crimes will be hobbled and decades of past convictions could well be thrown out. On top of that, the court has profoundly destabilised the governance of eastern Oklahoma. The decision today creates significant uncertainty for the state's continuing authority over any area that touches Indian affairs, ranging from zoning and taxation to family and environmental law. All true, but it goes beyond that. If, for example, you paid top dollar for a four-bedroom home in a fancy cul-de-sac in a prosperous suburb of Tulsa, the idea that the state you thought you were buying in has no jurisdiction over your fancy cul-de-sac in critical matters of law enforcement might become rather relevant should you decide to sell. Like almost all American jurisprudence, you could ask Justice Gorsuch about the 1964 Civil Rights Act, if you like. Like almost all American jurisprudence, this one will metastasize over the years ahead. The fights over the Supreme Court have been an enormous distraction because in the end, the court, like politics, bows to culture. So if you abandon that arena, as Conservative Inc. has done, and you let culture become a one-party state, getting a Neil Gorsuch, getting a rock-ribbed Neil Gorsuch past the United States Senate will avail you naught. So a 49-and-a-half-state union, as President Trump said of the mob's toppling statues the other day, their goal is to end America. ABC News now reports that the Trump campaign is considering having the president appear at rallies with statues. If it's a choice between a statue of Ulysses S. Grant and that sleazy open borders opportunist football coach Lehman brother hedge funder uh, Tommy Tuberville, I'd rather Trump stand next to a statue any day. Matter of fact, I'd be happy to run a statue... Uh, in November, rather than some jelly-spined, flesh-and-blood Republican congressional candidate. Are statues eligible for the uh, Supreme Court? Can we get a ruling on that? The grand store-wide clearing sale of our civilization continues. July 2020, the pre-Bastille Day weekend. From my hill to die on, to yours. Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-yay My, oh my, what's been cancelled today Plenty of old stuff and all of the fun Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-done Mr. Black Lives on my rear end There's no truth, no basis Everything's just super racist, zippity-doo-dah, zippity-a. I got a feeling today's my last day. Okay, okay, that's enough of that. I've been asked if I'd say a few words about the letter in Harper's Magazine on, quote, 
Justice and Open Debate, signed by basically a bunch of old-school lefties who are a bit worried about cancel culture, and for very good reason, since it overwhelmingly threatens them. There aren't many conservatives left to cancel at mainstream institutions, so obviously the phenomenon is more of a uh, problem to lefties who tack portside 99% of the time, but lurch, of course, on, say, the question of whether men can have uh, periods, which may yet destroy J.K. Rowling's future. Miss Rowling is a signatory to this letter, as is Salman Rushdie, with whom I had a run-in long ago, and Martin Amis, with whom I found um, common cause about 15 years back. There were a couple of old editors of mine on there, Anne Applebaum and Judith Shulevitz, and uh, Margaret Atwood and Winton Marsalis and Michael Ignatiev, and it's all a bit familiar to me for my human rights battles in Canada a decade back. They're what I used to call butt coverers, but coverers, as in, obviously we share the general view that Stein is reprehensible, deplorable, bigoted, hateful, but, but we view with some disquiet the Canadian state imposing a de facto lifetime publication ban on him. Uh, gee, thanks a lot. The butt coverers weren't really consequential to the adjudication of the matter uh, because it was too little too late. Uh, and there's a lot of butt covering in this Harper's letter. Here's the big butts of the opening. Our cultural institutions are facing a moment of trial. Powerful protests for racial and social justice are leading to overdue demands for police reform, along with wider calls for greater equality and inclusion across our society, not least in higher education, journalism, philanthropy and the arts. But this needed reckoning has also intensified a new set of moral attitudes and political commitments that tend to weaken our norms of open debate and toleration of differences in favour of ideological conformity. As we applaud the first development, we also raise our voices against the second. The forces of illiberalism are gaining strength throughout the world and have a powerful ally in Donald Trump, who represents a real threat to democracy. But resistance must not be allowed to harden into its own brand of dogma or coercion, which right-wing demagogues are already exploiting. The democratic inclusion we want can be achieved only if we speak out against the intolerant climate that has set in on all sides. The democratic... See what I mean? But, 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 but. Applaud the development, Trump, right-wing demagogues, but all that said, but, 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 but. But it isn't really intolerance on all sides, is it? And you guys know it. Trump isn't cancelling anyone. It's that chairman of the Board of Governors at the University of British Columbia who got cancelled for liking a Trump tweet. It's poor old Scott Baio who got cancelled from an ABC pitch meeting for some crappy show because he uh, voted for Trump. Who cancelled Jessica Mulroney? Who cancelled Jim Bennett at the New York Times? Who cancelled a Michigan State University administrator for being so foolish as to commission a rock-solid peer-reviewed up-the-wazoo scientific study that got favourably cited by horrors Heather MacDonald in the Wall Street Journal? Who cancelled Little Britain and Faulty Towers? Who's trying to get J.K. Rowling cancelled? cancelled right now. 
No right-wing demagogues, no Trump involved in this at all. I've been in the same room with a lot of these guys, though they'd be loath to admit it nowadays. And they're smart enough to know the answer uh, to where this thing is headed. J.K. Rowling knows where this is headed. Uh, so do Martin and Salma. Because there's a whole bunch of people who got there before you guys. As I always say when I'm on stage in Europe with... Lars Vilks or Nextshot or other continental cartoonists and authors. These are all Euro leftists. They spend their whole life decrying Uncle Sam. They're soissant retards. They've been rah-rahing socialism all their lives. And then they fell afoul of Islam. And all of a sudden they found that there was no one willing to stand on stage next to them except right-wing nutters like me and Douglas Murray. And as much as I like all these uh, old Euro-lefty Soissons retards, uh, I feel rather sorry for them because I know deep down they'd much rather be back with all their Euro-lefty mates. Ron Silver, uh, the great actor Ron Silver, who after 9-11 uh, found himself uh, on stage with fellas like me at the end of his life dying... Uh, from a, a terrible cancer, he too wished he could reconcile uh, with his old Hollywood lefty chums, uh, just just like uh, Lars Vilks and the Euro lefties. But the Euro lefties, uh, the, they're never going to be back on stage with Lars Vilks ever again. And that's the situation looming for Joe and Salman and Martin and Peggy, because the new shock troops of the cancel culture have adopted the same position as Islam. They're not interested in winning the debate because it is apostasy even to suggest there is anything to debate. They're not yet kicking open the door and opening fire as at Charlie Hebdo, but they're certainly on the same continuum. Uh, I wish it were, as some of my old friends say here, intolerance all around, because it's not a good thing when inalienable rights become partisan. It's not a good thing that, round about when I got caught in the crosshairs, free speech mysteriously became a right-wing thing. Now history is equally mysteriously becoming a right-wing thing. Artistic imagination is going to wind up a right-wing thing. Suppose J.K. Rowling were to atone for her sins by uh, writing a uh, novel in which a, a right-wing hater finds himself strangely drawn to a bewitching transgender lady. Ah, but that would be cultural appropriation, wouldn't it? Only authentic transgenders can write in the voice of the trans community. Just ask our friend Lionel Shriver about all these things. So despite all the throat-clearing, the letter, quite predictably, has already been damned as an exercise in white privilege by guys who just don't get it. Does Martin Amis really want to wind up like Lars Vilks, standing next to me on stage in Montenegro or Slovakia getting the world's last free speech award? I'm thinking of forming the cancelled club. Membership by invitation only. I might start with Margaret Wenty. Long-time columnist at The Globe and Mail in Canada. I have some past history with her. Around about the turn of the century, she beat me for the Best Columnist Award in the Canadian Newspaper Awards. Might have uh, happened more than once, now I think about it. Uh, the National Post was a beautifully written newspaper in those days. No one could deny that. So to show how... 
uh, broad-minded they were. The National Newspaper Awards would nominate me uh, and then give the prize to Peggy Wenty because she was understood to be, in broad terms, a person of the less of the left, uh, feminist, pro-abortion, holding the opposite position to me on almost everything you could mention. But she's not crazy left, so uh, she's been unpersoned by uh, Massey College. That's a college at the University of Toronto, and it's actually very recent. It was founded in the 60s to bring a little touch of Oxbridge to Hogtown, and so it has a quadrangle and a porter's lodge and a master rather than a president or whatever American colleges have. And my old colleague John Fraser was, in fact, master there, and was the perfect semi-parodic choice for the role. Now they've changed the name of master to principal because some guy made a plantation joke. That's all! One joke! Uh, and uh, so the master became the principal. Margaret Wenty was invited to be a senior fellow and member of their Quadrangle Society, which is basically a swank name for a dining club, and immediately the Triggerati began clutching their pearls. I thought Massey had just resolved to educate its members about racism and microaggression and do better to create a safe and welcoming environment for marginalised people, uh, one complainant wrote, and then we invited Margaret Wenty to join us. Seriously, how are my friends and colleagues supposed to feel safe sitting across from her at dinner? Oh, well, maybe because she's a petite woman d'un certain age, so even if she was suddenly to lunge at you across the table, you'd have a sporting chance of being able to run for your life, or actually even to saunter for your life. Massey College as spineless under its new non-masterly principle as the contemporary iterations of those Oxbridge colleges on which it is modelled, announced that it would be conducting an investigation into Peggy Wenty's racism, sexism, micro-aggresso, denialism, etc. And so Ms Wenty figured who needs this and resigned, and so to her credit did the distinguished historian Margaret Macmillan... Uh, Lloyd George's granddaughter, if you're interested, and a uh, and and an incisive historian and delightful person. In related news, a paper from the University of British Columbia published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology finds that narcissistic, manipulative and psychopathic people are more likely to engage in virtue signalling. Oh my, you... Do surprise me. It's all peer-reviewed. Uh, read that paper before its memory hold and the relevant UBC professors are cancelled. Escape the quarantine by delving into fantastic fiction chosen and read by Mark Stein himself in Stein's Tales for Our Time. Thrillers, mysteries, science fiction, romance. Tales that transcend genre. Everything from classics to titles hidden in the upper shelves. Mark Stein Club members can listen to the full catalogue of nearly three dozen tales for our time. Hear them all by going to www.steinonline.com tfot. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. Nobody believed in our new gods until the day before yesterday, and our forebears would find them as our great universities now say, problematic. Diversity, for example, is a morally neutral concept. But that wouldn't be the most puzzling aspect of the scene to them. Rather, it would be the acceptance by large numbers of people of a state ideology that cannot be questioned. You're either on Team BLM or you're fired. 
cancelled, forced to grovel, or at minimum forever tainted. Our forebears would be surprised at the widespread abandonment in nothing flat of the idea that one can have differences of opinion, even within those broadly on the same side, and they would be dismayed by the acceptance of as stupid a notion as uh, that only approved opinion can be permitted. Uh, although they'd also be amused, uh, I think, by the ruthless enforcement of diversity until it simply becomes a cover for stultifying and soul-killing uniformity. I think most listeners will know a line or two of William Blake, even if it's only Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright or the words of Jerusalem, assuming that hasn't yet been banned. Uh, except for three years on the Sussex coast near Bognor Regis, he spent his entire life in London, so almost everything he wrote... Uh, Andrew was an act of sheer imagination, and we seem to be losing the imaginative capacity that makes such a life possible. I chose this poem because it's sympathetic and humane, and those qualities are likewise in short supply uh, right now. Blake was implacably opposed to slavery, but this piece is not agitprop and indeed not particularly political. It is about a black boy who contrasts himself with a white boy, but it is not a poem of black and white. It is shaded and capable of different readings, starting with the first verse in which the child narrator alludes to the symbolic distinction the English language draws between the word white as good and pure and angelic, and black, symbolising something dark and wicked. The black boy acknowledges the distinction and subtly rejects it. I am black as if bereaved of light, as if. In other words, he only gives the appearance thereof. But as his mother tells him in the African jungle, the southern wild, God is in the sun and the sun shines upon them and that sunlight is God's love. This is quite a, a radical concept for 1789 uh, when most of those uh, Mr. Blake encountered in a day's social intercourse in London assumed Africans were heathens, savages. And as their sunburned bodies testify... The mother tells the boy, the heat of God's love can be hard to bear. But this blackness is just a cloud, as whiteness is also a cloud. The black is more obvious, but the African boy has a far heavier burden of suffering, which the white boy is sheltered from. But nevertheless, the mark of that shelter, his paleness, is also a cloud. And in God's heaven at their father's knee with both clouds lifted they will be equal and similar this is far beyond anything your average opponent of the slave trade believed in blake's day and a conventionally observant anglican would at the very least have been startled by the poet choosing to conjure a black child and his mother as the repository of christian selflessness but he did a man who had never set foot out of london chose to write in the voice of an African boy. This was audacious in 18th century England. Today, we're so advanced that it would be forbidden on the grounds of cultural appropriation. First published in 1789 in Songs of Innocence by William Blake, the little black boy. My mother bore me in the southern wild, and I am black, 
But, oh, my soul is white, white as an angel is the English child. But I am black, as if bereaved of light. My mother taught me underneath a tree, and sitting down before the heat of day, she took me on her lap and kissed me, and pointing to the east, began to say, Look at the rising sun, there God does live, and gives his light, and gives his heat away, and flowers and trees and beasts and men receive comfort in morning, joy in the noonday. And we are put on earth a little space that we may learn to bear the beams of love. And these black bodies and this sunburnt face are but a cloud and like a shady grove. For when our souls have learned the heat to bear, the cloud will vanish. We shall hear his voice saying, come out from the grove, my love and care, and round my golden tent like lambs rejoice. Thus did my mother say, and kissed me. And thus I say to little English boy, When I from black and he from white cloud free, And round the tent of God like lambs we joy, I'll shade him from the heat till he can bear To lean in joy upon our father's knee, And then I'll stand and stroke his silver hair, And be like him, and he will then love me. A poem from Me to You by William Blake, The Little Black Boy, two and a third centuries old, and a poem beyond the capacity of today's snarling mob even to understand. If you enjoy our weekly poetry rendezvous, do join me right here on Sunday, and we'll have a little something for you. Mark's mailbox is on the air. Kathy Wilson, a new member of the Mark Stein Club from about 10 days ago from uh, London. London, England, I should say, because uh, we've got uh, several members in London, Ontario. I have to check whether we've got more members in London, Ontario than London, England. I'm not sure what that would say about us. But Kathy, we welcome you along 10 days into the club. And Kathy poses a very simple question. Hi, Mark. Can you explain where the term woke originated? That's an interesting question, Kathy. I, I really didn't think too much about the word woke until uh, when I was guest hosting Tucker a couple of years back. Professor Jason Nichols, who's a very spirited guest, uh, said casually that I was uh, the least woke person he'd ever known. And I think I did a double take. And it occurred to me that uh, this word was now everywhere. How'd that happen? Well, there's a lot of people who think it came from the 2016 song Redbone by the vocal artiste Childish Gambino. Uh, possibly not his real name. Uh, but the chorus of that song, Redbone, contains the phrase, stay woke. It also contains the N-word. So being a honky, I'm not sure I'm allowed to quote it, but it goes something like, but stay woke, N-word creeping. They gun find you, gun catch you sleeping. Now stay woke, N-word creeping. Now don't you close your eyes. And fans of Childish Gambino 
uh, may think he invented the phrase, but it's pretty clear he's advising a young lady not to go to sleep literally while these uh, lively young men are creeping around. If you're looking for staying woke in the social justice sense of wising up, uh, you can go back a lot further than a, a minor hit of 2016. For example, the Scottsboro Boys were a group of black teenagers hoboing, as they say, on a freight train through Alabama in 1931 when it was stopped by a sheriff and the boys were accused of raping two white women and the case came to national attention and led belly wrote a song about them i'll tell you all about the scottsboro boys because we had a seal once and the scottsboro boys both got out and down that hard world that alabama's a hard world down there and the scottsboro boys had a long time six years that time them four boys what got out and i met them and the boys had such a hard time and i've been through down in that old that hard world but i didn't stay long and when I saw the Scottsboro boys, I shook the hand and began to thinking about and hear what I said about the Scottsboro boys, because I know they had a hard time. And here the advice I give Joe Lewis, and this is the advice I give to all the Harlem colored people, and what I mean all the good colored people. Led Belly liked writing songs about people in the news. He wrote one about the Queen, in fact. Go ahead and beat it out. When she was Princess Elizabeth. But here's his Scottsboro song about the perils of visiting Alabama. Go to Alabama and you better watch out. The landlord will get you gonna jump and shout. Scottsboro, Scottsboro boys, they can tell you what it's all about. Go to them landlords, if they get you, boy, they're gonna hang you. Go to Alabama and you better watch out. The landlord will get you gonna jump and shout. Scottsboro, Scottsboro boys, tell you what it's all about. That's Lead Belly singing about the Scottsboro boys, and here's how he explained the song in 1940. And uh, he showed me the Scottsboro Boys, and I shake hands with him, so I made this little song about down there. So I, I advise everybody to be a little careful when they go along through that, but stay woke, keep the eyes open. You hear that? When you're visiting Alabama, stay woke, as in be alert to reality. I think that's pretty close to the current usage. In April 1928, Harlem... Uh, hosted a, uh, a Harlem-wide, or Black Belt-wide, I should say, Black Belt-wide Stay Woke Ball from 5 p.m. to 5 a.m. And it wasn't just about staying woke in the sense of dancing till dawn, but also about staying woke attitudinally. For what it's worth, what's one of the most prominently deployed words in black lyrics? The first word, indeed, of your standard 12-bar blues. Woke up this morning and my woman done left me, or whatever. Woke up this morning. So implicit in that, I think, is the sense not merely of rising for a new day, but of uh, confronting the vicissitudes of life. Am I saying it's a black word? Uh, no, uh, actually I'm not. In fact, the first social justice deployment of the concept is really uh, the wide awakes of the early years of the Republican Party. In March 1860, Abraham Lincoln spoke against slavery in Hartford, Connecticut, and was given a torchlight escort back to his hotel by five store clerks who'd formed a group called the Wide Awakes. And he enjoyed it so much that he got the party to encourage the formation of wide awake chapters around the country and they were very influential especially in the north and especially in mobilizing the youth vote so we've taken a century and a half to come full circle as it were um, the idea of awakening a refined understanding of what's going on uh, politically uh, started with northern whites then spread in a rather more vernacular sense to southern blacks 
uh, and has now been taken up again by delicate white uh, trusty fundy types who are Democrat shock troops to a degree Abe Lincoln's pioneering Republican shock troops could never have imagined. Although I would say, Kathy, unless you're childish Gambino, there's not a lot of money in it, as uh, Gillette and other overwoke corporations have learned, get woke, go broke. Uh, terrific question, Kathy. We, we could do a whole show on that, and maybe we will. Mark Stein's Last Call. Our in-house Hamiltonian, Miss Kathy Shadle, wrote a week or two back in her Saturday movie slot that if you're born in Hamilton, Ontario, and you use more than two-syllable words, they march you to the city limits and point you toward Toronto. Nick Cordero was born in Hamilton, a graduate of Westdale Secondary School, and he spent a couple of years in Toronto before setting his sights on Broadway. And he made it to a starring role on The Great White Way. I'm playing Cheech in Bullets Over Broadway, which is a Woody Allen movie turned into a musical directed by Susan Stroman. I mean, he's just such a master at the form. And, you know, I got a chance, when we, the opening night party, he was walking out as I was walking in, and I got a chance to thank him personally for, you know, trusting me with the role of Cheech, because, uh, you know, I'm an unknown actor, at the, especially at the time. and. Uh, you know, and he was very uh, supportive and complimentary, and I'll never forget that moment in the hallway at the Met. My God, crazy. Nick Cordero met the love of his life in the cast of that show, Amanda Klutz, and they married. And a year ago, they had a little boy, and a kid from Hamilton seemed to have it all. I see trees of green. the COVID came a call in. Nick Cordero was young, but he couldn't shake it off. And his wife started doing progress reports on Instagram, inviting his fans to sing along. So in that spirit, let's do this one more time. And uh, again, guys, thank you so much for all your support. Like you got one night, baby, like. March turned to April, and they amputated his leg, and a Broadway showman who'd tap-danced at the Tonys to a Sue Stroman routine knew he'd never be doing that again. And April turned to May, and they put him on a pacemaker. And you know, you'll never be able to do eight shows a week on that. And May turned to June, over 90 days, trying to wiggle free of this thing. And June to July and a bleak finale. Life throws so many things at you and you never know what that is. Amanda Klutz opened up about the death of her husband, Nick Cordero, on Monday. Nick left this earth with 
people around him that he loved listening to music. I don't, I don't think he would have wanted anything else. I'll miss him every day of my life, that's for sure. I see skies of blue in clouds of white the bright blessed day the dark sacred night and I think to of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 41 from Hamilton to Hollywood Nick Cordero So beautiful and so many all at once I don't know how anybody can choose How can the judges maintain their detached objective view perhaps it's all put on I'd want to go on studying them all day so tall so shapely so statuesque so fascinatingly uh, oh feminine Whatever your nationality, you lovely creatures, you all speak my sort of language. Miss World 1958. We don't think of Muslima lovelies in the swimsuit round, but they were back then. And Miss Egypt that year was a young lady called Raga El Gadawi. She didn't win, but she parlayed that beauty queen title into a spectacular six-decade career in Egyptian film and television. It wasn't all full-length features with Omar Sharif. Here's Miss El Gadawi in a recent Arab TV ad. She's pushing a motor car along, which isn't easy for an octogenarian actress until she's fortified by a Snickers bar. <laughs> Snickers Snickers with a lady from the Flickers, Raga El Gadawi. She just wrapped a new TV series when she was stricken by COVID-19 and found that it wasn't quite as easy as pushing that motor car. Among those mourning her was Jean-Claude Van Damme, who'd met her just a few months ago. Ooh, Wow! Jean-Claude Van Damme wrote on Instagram, she was so full of life, cheerful and majestic, I cannot believe she's gone, but she will always live in my memory with her lovely spirit and beautiful laughs. May Allah bless her soul. I see friends shaking hands Saying how do you do They're really saying I love you Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 85, an Egyptian icon, Raga El Gadawi. The Kosa nation in South Africa is divided 
Because three centuries ago, King Fallo made two arranged marriages and both brides showed up on the same day. Don't you just hate it when that happens? So there was a dispute as to which would get to be the senior wife and sire the heirs to the throne. So after some thought, both were given different titles but equal rank and their children-to-be designated heirs of separate turf. The ensuing Amaharabi nation survived the Boers and the English and apartheid and the new South Africa, and for the last decade were under the regency of Queen Noloiso. Our breaking news a short while ago, the Amakakabe royal family has confirmed the sudden passing of the regent, Queen Noloiso Sandile. She was admitted at Cecilia Makiwane Hospital for COVID-19-related complications. Queen Noloiso is a sister to the Zulu monarch, King Goodwill's Welatini. Royal family spokesperson Prince uh, Sipo Burns Amashe says the Amakosa nation is saddened by the passing of the queen. Queen Noloiso was a shrewd player and a great survivor in tribal politics. A community in mourning, Queen Noloiso Sandile, took over as a regent in 2011, following the passing of her husband, King Makoba Sandile. She played a pivotal role in community development. Now, the community is adrift. He says she liked the community people. She founded a knitting, a baking and a catering project. She was basically a pioneer for development. I hear babies cry. I watch them of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 56, Queen Noloiso, regent of the Amaharabi. That will do it for today's show. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. reserved.